Will you please turn in your Bibles to 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 8, and we want everybody to be able to follow along. We're actually going to look at a number of passages today, so it'll be important for you to be able to follow along. So these brothers have some Bibles. They're going to make their way down the aisle, get their attention if you need a copy of Scripture, and they'll get one to you so that you can follow with us. We also have an outline that's inserted in your program as each week. And I encourage you to pull that out, as we'll be referring to that in just a bit. In our multi-year leadership institute, we go through four manuals of material that we cycle through. Now guys, uh, just as a, by the way, if you're interested in what leadership institute is, ask me about that, I'll, uh, I'll tell you. Uh, and uh, you can jump into that when we start our next manual. You don't have to wait four years until we've completed the entire cycle. We'll do that later this year. But every uh, several years, we begin a brand new cycle, and at our first meeting, I read to the men a memo, uh, fictitious, as you'll see, but written to Jesus of Nazareth by Palestine Management Consultants. And the Palestine management consultants say to Jesus of Nazareth, thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you've picked for management positions in your new organization. All of them have now taken our battery of tests, and we have not only run the results through our computer, but we've also arranged personal interviews for each of them with our psychologist and our vocational aptitude consultant. The profiles of all the tests are included, and you will want to study them carefully. As part of our service, we'll make some general comments. These are given as a result of staff consultations and come without any additional fee. It's the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you're undertaking. They do not have the team concept. We recommend you continue your search. Simon is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The brothers James and John place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas has a skeptical attitude that would tend to undermine morale. It's our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus have radical leanings and show a high score on the manic depressive scale. Only one shows great potential. Ability, resourcefulness, a business mind, meets people well, ambitious, highly motivated. We recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. Have you ever noticed that God most often uses those that everyone else would reject? In fact, the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 1, Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards, not many were influential, not many were of noble birth. It's not that God cannot use the wealthy or well-educated or the socially respected. He has done so both in Scripture and in church history. In fact, that passage that I read says not many of you were wise by human standards, influential or born into a socially prominent family. Not many of you were those things, rather than none of you were those things, but not many. It's not God's usual way. Now, why is that? Because the passage in 1 Corinthians 1 goes on to give the reason. It's, quote, so that no one may boast before him. 
You see, those with natural gifts, those who've acquired riches and achieved social status, their temptation is to inwardly, if not outwardly, boast. Look at what I've done. And to inwardly, if not outwardly, criticize. Look at me and look at most other people. When God uses a man or woman, he wants it to be absolutely clear who it is that gets the glory. So most often he uses those who are in low positions and places so that the work he does in their lives is absolutely unmistakable. And here's what that means then for us. We can all be used of God. The weak position that you are now in, of whatever sort, whatever trial you have, whatever the limitations that life has, has brought you, whatever you're in now, it is a time for God to show himself strong. And I've asked you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 8 for this reason. Look at verse 15. It says, David reigned over all Israel, doing what was just and right for all his people. So at this point in God's unfolding drama of redemption, now David has risen to be king of of Israel. But this morning we need to see what God's work was in getting him there. And the story of how David came to be named this way in the passage I just read is told to us in 1 Samuel. So I'm asking you to turn back a few pages to 1 Samuel chapter 1. David's king. David has become a mighty warrior, as we will see some more of next week. But how did he get there? 1 Samuel chapter 1 and verse 10 says, In bitterness of soul, Hannah wept much and prayed to the Lord. And she made a vow saying, O Lord Almighty, if you will only look upon your servant's misery and remember me and not forget your servant, but give her a son, then I will give him to the Lord for all the days of his life. And no razor will ever be used on his head. I'll mention the razor thing in a minute. The story of how God made David a mighty warrior and king begins in the context of human weakness and frailty. And those are themes that you see throughout the book of 1 Samuel. And we're going to see together. Let's ask the Lord to help us as we do. Father, we come to you in our weakness and our frailty. All of us in some way limited by our humanity but also by our sin, the circumstances that have been imposed upon us, some that we have brought ourselves. But Lord, you are the God who shows yourself strong in our weakness. Help us then to see that in the pages of your word and leave this place with courage, not because of ourselves, but because of the God we serve. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Now I ask you to look at that outline that's inserted in your program. The very first major point there, I say God helps those who, and what's, what goes there? Well, some of you are wisely afraid to answer, because you know that I've tricked you. Uh, but the, the saying that we all know is God helps those who help themselves. But in fact, that's quite contrary to what Scripture teaches. What we're going to see is this, that God helps those who He humbles. God helps the people that he first humbles. 
And we're going to see the different ways in which God provides that humbling. God delights in putting us in impossible situations and then showing His glory in it and when He so chooses in getting us out of it. Sometimes He doesn't bring us out of it. He might just show His strength in it, but sometimes in bringing us out of it as well. Some years ago, I had a man ask me where that verse is in the Bible that says God helps those who help themselves. There was no one here, and I'm sure after hearing that, you'll never ask me that as well. God helps those not who help themselves, but who He humbles. Now, what are the categories of the people that God humbles and then shows His glory in the way He goes about it? The first one is this, He helps the helpless. God helps the helpless. Hannah's barrenness in 1 Samuel is a particular type of helplessness. Since she, of course, can't control whether she conceives. But as you read that first chapter, you see that she's deeply distressed, but not for the reasons that we normally associate with childlessness. A married woman who wants a child and is unable to conceive is naturally going to have some measure of difficulty dealing with that. Children, the Bible says, are a delight, and they are to be desired, and it's a good desire indeed. But Hannah's not only interested in having a child for the joy that the child brings, but she makes very clear in that first chapter and on into the second that her desire is for the glory of God and the carrying on of His name, God's name, by His people. And that's why she makes the vow that she does. God, if you give me this child, this child will be yours, not mine. And in chapter 2, she gives this magnificent song of praise to God for his provision after he indeed does give her a son. I mentioned at the end of verse 11, I would briefly talk about that. No razor shall touch his head. It's simply saying that he will be one who will have an outward sign that he is and has been dedicated to you, Lord. It's not that he would never cut his hair. He would just not uh, shave his head. And the reason in Israel this was so very important, beyond the desire to have a child, a good desire, but it was so very important to not just have a child but to have a son, was because that was the way you carried on the name and the legacy in the land that God had given to his people. And so it was a great tragedy for one not to have a son to carry out that name and not only carry carry on your name but to carry it out in the land that God had promised to his people. And so having a seed and a progeny was of utmost importance. And if you look at the line of people that God has used up to this point now in the life of Samuel, who is Hannah's son, and then we'll see later in David, if you, if you look at that line reading from the first book of the Bible on, you find a number of times where you have barren women. For God to put them and those families in a helpless situation so that when he grants that child, there is no mistaking from whom he came. Think back to Father Abraham. And think back to to Sarah and the drama surrounding Isaac. Or then Isaac's wife, Rebekah, and her two sons, Jacob and, and Esau. And then with Rachel... And Jacob, giving uh, siring sons through her, including that of Joseph. Samson's mother was originally childless and wondering if God would give her a child. And then coming into the New Testament, Luke chapter 1, the conception and birth of John the Baptist by Elizabeth, a miraculous birth indeed. 
So participation in the land was paramount and a seed was of utmost importance. But now in the New Testament, we have this side of the resurrection. And how is one's name carried on and how long will one's name be carried on? Be carried on forever. And so being without a child can be a very, a very difficult thing just because of the joy that a child brings and the desire that God naturally gives us to have children and to be fruitful and to multiply. But now with the resurrection, we know that our name will be carried on in a land that is yet, yet to come. And in the course of time, Hannah became pregnant. She gave birth to a son. She named him Samuel, chapter 1 tells us. And the reason she named him Samuel is because his name means, I asked of the Lord. And she says, I named him that because I asked the Lord for him. And so one commentator says this, our hopelessness and our helplessness are not a barrier to God's work. When his people are without strength and without resources and without hope and without human gimmicks, then he loves to stretch forth his hand from heaven. And once we see where God often begins, we will understand how we may be encouraged. Do you understand, friends, this is often where God begins. In our weakness, in our frailty, wondering how it's going to work out. And then God loves to be the one who offers the solution and that there's no mistaking who it is that has provided, provided it. So God humbles himself, humbles his people so that he can work his mighty works in their lives. But God humiliates his enemies. He humbles his people, but he humiliates his enemies. It's a form of humbling, but it's designed to make them see the error of their way in a very stark way. And that's why I say in the next point in your outline, he helps the helpless, but he also helps, I say, the harassed. Now, what do I mean by that, the harassed? Chapter 2. Take a look at chapter 2 and verse 11. The boy, the boy that God gave to Hannah, Samuel, ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for God. Now, when it says scoundrels in Hebrew, that is literally... Now, Eli's sons were sons of Belial. And if you read through your Old Testament, you see the name Belial. This is, this is demonic. It's, it's another way of saying they're sons of the devil. And it was said, when it says that they had no regard for the Lord... It's literally, they did not know God. And so here you have a very difficult situation in Israel indeed. You have Eli, the high priest, and he has these two sons who are sons of the devil and do not know God. And they, these two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they committed great sin. They committed liturgical sin. That is, in the liturgy, the worship of Israel. A sacrifice would be offered. There would be a post-sacrificial meal. And chapter, uh, the, chapter 2 tells us that there were, there, were, there were times when these boys would send a servant, a representative, with a three, it says a three-pronged fork. And he would go into the houses of the people of Israel who were cooking that post-sacrificial meal. And the servant, on behalf of the high priest's sons, would stick that fork into the boiling pot. Whatever came out went back to them. They were taking food from God's people, food that was part of religious service. 
Verse 17 of chapter 2 tells us this. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. They committed liturgical sin. But it's worse than that. They committed sexual sin as well. In verse 22, Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Oh, my. And so here is God. He's going to show his mighty hand, as we're going to see. But he does that when he humbles people. He humbles him, his own people. He humiliates his enemies. We're going to see how he humiliated Eli, and particularly Hophni and Phinehas. And he does that ultimately for the good of his people, because he is a God of compassion. And we see this God of compassion walking the earth in the New Testament. The Bible tells us in Matthew chapter 9, when he, Jesus, saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed, they were helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. And this is the situation of God's people now. The people that are supposed to lead them. Eli is supposed to be involved in this situation. He's supposed to correct this situation. He's got these immoral sons, these apostate sons, and he does nothing to remove them. And so God intervenes directly for his people and for his name. Now look at verse 25 of chapter 2. His sons did not listen to their father's rebuke. Eli tells them, boys, you, shouldn't, you know you shouldn't do this. You must stop doing this. He rebukes them, but he doesn't remove them. And they didn't listen to his rebuke, and, and notice what it says. For it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Yikes. <laughs> you say, well, you know, this is God coming through, this is God helping. How is this helping? Well, here's how it's helping. God is removing those who have determined to go the opposite way of his directives for the sake of his people. Hophni and Phinehas, the sons of Eli, are completely apostate. And so God has determined they will, and my grace will not be extended to them to turn them around. They will go the very direction that their hearts are set on, and I will allow them to do that. So they didn't listen to their father because the Lord is not extending his grace to them to open their hearts because they have previously closed them shut. We see this in the New Testament. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1, that God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. God gave them over to shameful lusts. God gave them over to a depraved mind. Three times in three verses, God gave them over. And that's what he's done now with Hophni and Phinehas. He comes to the aid of God's people by, as we're going to see, humiliating God's enemies. And he comes to the aid of God's people as well by his word. In verse 27 of chapter 2, an unnamed prophet approaches Eli. And this unnamed prophet confronts Eli and predicts the death of his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. We'll see that death in just a bit. So this is God all the while now working for the sake of his people. Stealth, it's not noisy, it's not crowded, it's simply God at work taking care of his people behind the scenes. As you come to chapter 3 and verse 1, here's what it says. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. In those days, the word of the Lord was rare. There were not many visions. 
Now, when it says in those days, the word of the Lord was rare, there were not many visions. You all remember that one of the ways that God would communicate his word was through visions that he would give to prophets. But in those days, it was rare. But now, beginning in chapter 3, because God is grooming new leadership in the person of this son that he gave to Hannah, Samuel, now because of that, God is going to begin to give his word again to Israel. There's been a time period, it's telling us, where he's cut it off because of the evil of Eli, allowing his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, to do what they are doing. Many of you are familiar with this famous verse in the King James Version, Proverbs 29, where there is no vision, the people perish. Politicians sometimes use that to say, I have a vision for the country, follow my vision. But what it's saying in Scripture is where there is no word from God in the form of a vision, then the people don't know what to do and the people perish. And so the NIV says rightly, where there is no revelation, people cast off restraint. So in the midst of all the gloom, God is at work providing new godly leadership for his people. And he's doing so with no slogans, no campaigns, no speeches. Hear this. Growth in grace seldom makes noise. It happens slowly, but in God's people it happens surely. And God is always at work in our lives, sometimes behind the scenes, preparing for that very thing. Hophni and Phinehas and Eli are very visible, but God's work is ongoing and it will come to fruition as we will see. I read the story of a World War II B-17 bombing raid in which one of the B-17's gas tank was hit by 11 anti-aircraft shells that ended up in the gas tank and there was no explosion. And this B-17 makes it back, and there's an investigation that's done. And after all of these shells taken out of the tank were emptied, uh, were opened, they were all empty except the one. And the one that had something in it didn't have an explosive in it, but rather it had a note that was written in check. And it said this, this is all we can do for you now. Now, who wrote that note and put that there? And who was putting empty shells out there for the Nazis to use as anti-aircraft? It was Czechs who had been forced into labor by the Nazis who said, we're doing all that we can do to help you now. Quietly, imperceptibly, but importantly. And the people of God were not only harassed by the ungodly leadership that they had. And God is undertaking for them. But they were harassed by a group of people in another nation called the Philistines. And they're going to become very important in just a bit. And so God humbles us in order to show himself great. He helps the helpless. He helps the harassed. Thirdly, in your outline, God helps the sinful. The sinful. Chapter 4, verse 1. We meet the Philistines. The Israelites went out to fight against the Philistines. The Israelites camped at Ebenezer and the Philistines at Aphek. The Philistines deployed their forces to meet Israel, and as the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 of them on the battlefield. When the soldiers returned to camp, the elders of Israel asked, Why did the Lord bring defeat on us today before the Philistines? Well, let me just stop there. 
Well, I've got a clue. How about the ongoing sin that you've tolerated in your camp now for decades in the form of Eli and his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas? And so they say, well, now what are we going to do? And they come up with this plan. Let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from Shiloh so that he may go with us. Now, when it says he may go with us, that can actually be translated, and I think should, given the context that we're going to see. They're saying, let, let us bring the ark of the Lord's covenant from where the tabernacle is, from where Hophni and Phinehas are doing these immoral things at the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Let's take now the ark of the covenant, and let's take it before us in battle, so that it, rather than he, it can be translated he, it, it may go with us and save us from the hand of our enemies. Do you all see what they're doing? They're using this box as a rabbit's foot. We don't have to be holy before the Lord. We've got this box and it's magic. And it works, it works magic for us. And verse 4 says, So the people sent men to Shiloh. They brought back the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim. And Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. How you all think this is going to turn out? And what is this Ark of the Covenant? Let's just be reminded. It's that sacred gold-covered portable box, three and three-quarters feet long, two and a quarter feet wide and high. And they, they remembered that God had done great things when his presence was symbolized by the ark. Numbers chapter 10 tells us, whenever the ark set out, Moses said, rise up, O Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. Leviticus chapter 26 Though God says, if you will not listen to me, I'll set my face against you so that you'll be defeated by your enemies. Ark or no ark, box or no box. And so what they're doing is using a pressure tactic on God. They're saying, you know, God knows that if we take the box out there, that represents him. And if we lose, then it's going to be not just a humiliation for us, it'll be a humiliation for, for him. So he's got to come through now because we've got the box out there. So what happened? They go to battle. God had already predicted through an unnamed prophet in chapter 2 and verse 27 as he spoke to Eli, your two sons are going to die on the same day. And here's what happens, verse 17 of chapter 4. A man brings news. The man who brought the news said this, Israel fled before the Philistines and the army has suffered heavy losses. Your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead. And the ark of God has been captured. And after defeat by the Philistines, despite the ark being with them, because they were using it as a pressure tactic and as a rabbit's foot, the headlines are now not only going to read, Israel is a loser, but so is her God. But the irony is this, friends. With the death of Hophni and Phinehas, God was actually beginning to protect his honor and to restore it. God may be despised in Philistia for a while, but he will no more be despised in Shiloh as he has been. The Bible goes on to tell us that one of those two sons' wife, Phinehas' wife, was pregnant. 
She died at hearing that news as well, but she gave birth just before she died. And she gave birth to a son, and she named that son, y'all remember? Ichabod. The name means the glory has departed from Israel. Now, that's the sin. God helps the sinful. We're going to see how he helps them. But you see how sinful these people were, how manipulative they were. And then they ask in 2 Samuel chapter 8 for a king. Now, there was nothing wrong in particular with them asking for a king. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the Bible says, When you say, let us set a king over us like the other nations around us, he must not turn from the law to the right or to the left. And so the problem, as many have mistakenly thought, was not that they wanted a king per se. God gave them kings. He's going to give them King Saul and King David. But it wasn't that they wanted a king, it was that they wanted the wrong kind of king and for the wrong reason. And in chapter 7 of Samuel, I'll just read this for you. After all of this has happened now, with the Philistines and the ark being captured, Samuel still does this. In chapter 7 and verse 12, Samuel, it says, took a stone, he set it up, and he named it Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. Now, that's important for this reason. Chapter 7 and verse 12. Thus far, to this point, all the way through, the Lord has helped us. The word Ebenezer means that very thing, stone of help. And so so Samuel sets that up to say that all along with all the stuff that's happened, the good, the bad, and much ugly, God has still been helping us. And so now we want to see how it is that God does it. For whom does he do it? He does it for the helpless. He does it for the harassed. And he does it for the sinful. But how does he do it? He does it in ways that highlight him and to show that it's not by might and not by power, but by me. And so the second thing I say in your outline is this. God helps those he humbles, but God helps them in glorious ways. God helps in glorious ways. Now, I choose my words carefully there. When I say glorious ways, I mean this, in ways that show his glory, in ways that show his character. You remember that God's glory is his character. And so God helps, but he helps in ways that show what he is like. And so let's see how it is that God helps. God helps, first of all, by showing his compassion. Remember, we started with Hannah, and Hannah is helpless. And how does God help her? Well, he, he, he gives her a son. He gives her Samuel. But he does so because he is motivated by his compassion, just as he was with the people of Israel in Moses' day. Exodus chapter 3, God said to, Mo, to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. Our God is a God of compassion. And when we cannot help ourselves, our God, because motivated due to his compassion and his love for his people, he moves to help us. But he not only shows his compassion in the way he helps, he also shows his uniqueness. His uniqueness. So the Philistines have gotten the ark. <laughs> well, that, this is going to be a joy ride for the Philistines to have the ark of God. In fact, chapter 5 tells us about what happened. 
Chapter 5 and verse 1. After the Philistines had captured the ark, they took it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. Then they carried the ark into Dagon's temple and set it beside Dagon. When the people of Ashdod rose early the next day, there was Dagon fallen on his face on the ground before the ark of the Lord. (laughs) This is beautiful. Here's Dagon, the national deity of Philistine, Philistine. And Dagon is bowing down before the Ark of the Covenant. And then it says, they took Dagon and put him back in his place, just showing his helplessness. He has to be helped out by people. But the following morning when they rose, there was Dagon falling on his face on the ground before the Ark of the Lord. This time his hands and his head had been broken off and they were lying on the threshold, only his body remained. God is moving to show his uniqueness. I am God, and there is no other. Despite the rebellion of my people, despite the sinfulness of my people, despite the harassment of their ungodly leaders, I am moving to spare my people and also to vindicate my name. In the ancient world, severed heads and hands were battlefield trophies that assisted the victor in establishing the correct body count. It was something the Philistines had done many times, and now it was being done to their national deity, their God. The Bible says in Isaiah chapter 46, Bel, the idol, bows down. Nebo stoops low. Their idols are borne on beasts of burden. The images that are carried about are burdensome a burden for the weary. They stoop and bow down together, unable to rescue the burden. They themselves go off into captivity. But I am he who will sustain you. I have made you and I will carry you. I will sustain you and I will rescue you. Do you see that? All of these would-be gods have to be carried and rescued and cared for. But if there's any rescuing and carrying and caring for, it's going to be from me to you, says the true living God. And so they moved the ark from the temple to another town. They moved it from Ashdod to Gath. But in the city of Gath, this Philistine city, an outbreak of illness occurs. So the people of Gath say, get this thing out of here. Let's take it to Ekron, another Philistine city. But as you go on and read the account, the chamber of commerce of Ekron meets them at the gates and says, this will really be bad for tourism if this thing shows up here. And they refuse to allow the Ark of the Covenant to come back, and they conspire to say, let's give the Ark back to Israel. God humiliates his enemies. Do you remember a scene in the life of Jesus where he cast demons out of a man, and those demons went into a herd of swine, and those Pigs committed suicide. The people heard about it. The man went into town. He told the story. Here's what the Bible says. The people began to plead with Jesus to leave their region. He's cast out demons. He's restored this man to his right mind. And people are scared to death because they know they are around someone absolutely holy. And so the ark goes back to Israel. It goes back to Israel, but not just back to Israel, with the symbols of their distress. It goes back with five kings of Philistine, chapter 5 tells us. 
They take it back, and these five kings of the chief five cities in, in, Philist- in Philistine, and they, uh, each, fi- each of the five kings have two items, the same thing, these ten items. Gold-plated tumors and gold-plated rats. Now, why do you think? Well, remember there was this outbreak in Gath of illness? Many believe, and I believe, that it was something like the bubonic plague that God brought on them, which is borne by, often by rats and results in tumors. And they come back and they say, this is what the true and living God has done to us. We are giving you your ark back. He helps in ways that show his compassion. He helps in ways that show his absolute uniqueness. And then thirdly in your outline, he helps in ways that show his wisdom. In chapter 8, the people demanded a king. In verses 11 through 18, Samuel tells them four times, look, you sure you want a king? (laughs) He says four times, a king will take from you. That's the phrase he uses. A king's going to take from you money for property. (laughs) By the way, does that sound familiar? (laughs) Okay. And the king will take, and he will take, and he will take. That's what Samuel warns, but nothing doing. They insist. And so God, through a series of circumstances, identifies Saul. You want a king? We'll give you a king. And the Bible goes out of its way to tell us the characteristics of Saul. Saul is tall, he's handsome, he's strong, and as a king, he's a disaster. Their sin was not in wanting a king. Their sin was in seeking to replace God. You don't need to turn there. Well, turn there, please. Chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel 12 and verse 8. Samuel lays out three instances of the Lord's deliverance for his people. He reminds them, and in verse 8, he says, And you cried out to God, the Lord. In verses 9 through 11, he reminds them that on a second instance, they cried out to the Lord. But notice verse 12. But when you saw that Nashash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, you said to me, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was king. Do you see what had happened? In the past, they had cried out to the Lord. Now they said, it's not the Lord we need. We need a new form of government. And God gave them a new form of government in the person of Saul. Saul's a disaster. They realize Saul's a disaster. And God in his mercy, even to these sinful people, is showing his wisdom. If you follow my ways, my wise ways, you can avoid much calamity. And so Samuel is sent by God to Bethlehem to find a successor to Saul. The Bible tells us in chapter 16 that when Samuel arrives in Bethlehem, He's been told by God that this next king is going to come from the sons of a guy named Jesse. And he sees this first son of Jesse, one named Eliab. And he starts to repeat the same mistake that was made with Saul. The Bible tells us in chapter 16 that Eliab was was tall and dark and handsome. And Samuel says to himself, this must be the guy. 
And God says, no, it's not him. And then six more of Jesse's sons are paraded before him. No, it's not him. We're out of sons. And Samuel says, well, God says he's going to come from your household. Where You've got to have some more somewhere. Well, I got the little one who's out with the sheep. Well, go get him. And David comes. And David is small and young and precisely the opposite of Saul and Eliab. But precisely the one that God has chosen. Verse 7 of chapter 16 is this famous principle of God. Man looks on the outward appearance. Do you see it? But God looks on the heart. And then we have the famous encounter, and we will end. And all of God's people said. Chapter 17, this one who is going to become king, who has now been anointed by Samuel, this young shepherd boy David, goes out to bring food to his brothers who are at battle, in quotes, against the Philistines yet again. And in chapter 17, there is a giant named Goliath. And Goliath is breathing out defiance to Israel and defiance to the God of Israel four times, excuse me, six times in chapter 17. The word defy or disgrace is used. That's the theme of chapter 17. But what are Jesse's sons doing in the face of this? What are the Israelite soldiers doing in the face of this? They're cowering in fear. Now, they have pretty good reason to cower from fear, if it were not for the fact that God has showed him strong over and over and over again. Goliath is over nine feet tall. Chapter 17 tells us that Goliath wears 125 pounds of armor. Chapter 17 tells us that the tip of his spear weighs 15 pounds. And he is breathing out this defiance, and as David goes to bring food to his brothers, he hears this and he says, what will the king do for the man who defeats this one who is defying the God of Israel? And we all know the story that David picked up his stones, five stones. He used one, one stone that was probably two to three inches in diameter. And in the hands of a skilled slingman, it could travel 100 to 150 miles an hour and a bullseye right to the forehead. Now, we're almost done, but stay with it. Goliath goes down with a thud. And Daniel rushes to his dead body. And he takes the sword from the sheath of Goliath. Why does he take his sword? Because he doesn't have one. Why doesn't he have one? Because he doesn't need one. And he cuts off his head. Y'all remember, remember Dagon and his head and his hands? The Bible says he, he took the head of Goliath back to, back to Saul. The whole chapter of chapter 17 is about weakness. Eliab, his older brother, says to David, you're a pain. Get away from me. Saul says to him, you're too young. Goliath says, you're too puny. But hear this. 
What matters is not the best weapons, but the real God. And Dagon had fallen face down, vanquished by Israel's God, and now Goliath has done the same. Dagon was face down before the ark, with his head and his hands broken off, and now Goliath's head is cut off, just the same. I read a story about a woman who in church history faced death with great courage. And here's what the Bible says. Under the reign of paganism, or excuse me, what this illustration says. Under the reign of paganism, a Christian woman, even though she was pregnant, was condemned to die for her profession of faith. The day before her execution, she went into labor, naturally crying out in her pangs. The jailer took the opportunity to ridicule her. If you make a noise today, how will you endure a violent death tomorrow? She replied, Today I suffer what is ordinary and have only ordinary assistance. Tomorrow I'm to suffer what is more than ordinary and shall hope for more than ordinary assistance. And you see, dear friends, that's exactly what our God does. And that's why the Bible tells us this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. God humbles us. God humiliates his enemies. God puts us in places of weakness and frailty to show himself strong, to show his compassion and his uniqueness and his wisdom. Remember we talked about Hannah's barrenness. I want to end with reminding you of someone else's barrenness and an incredible story of God in weakness bringing about his greatness. Elizabeth gave birth to John the Baptist. The Bible tells us in Luke chapter 1, the angel spoke to Mary about one greater than John the Baptist. Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who was said to be barren is now in her sixth month. And then the angel says this, nothing is impossible with God. And he announces to Mary her conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friend, we are on 2,000 years removed from that. Do you believe nothing is impossible for God? Do you believe that God will show his compassion and his uniqueness and his wisdom in your life? So I ask you to do this before we go to the Lord in prayer. Think about that place of humility he has brought you. Think about that place of weakness that you are in right now. Lord, I don't know what to do. You've given me a situation I don't know the way out. And God is calling you, he's calling me to trust him because he has shown you marvelous, mighty works, one after another, both in his word and then in the salvation he has wrought through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's bow together as we express our trust in the Lord. Father, we thank you for these narratives in the lives of your people. We thank you for your work in your people despite their helplessness like we, despite their sinfulness like me. Lord, you are determined to show yourself the true and living God, the, God, the compassionate God, the only unique God, the only wise God. Lord, we read these stories and we, we are thrilled, but Lord, we need to see them in our own lives.
Help us to be people who do not take matters into our own hands, who do not defy your directives, but rather patiently trust in you. That's what you're calling us to, to show your character through our lives because we value all that you are. We believe all that you have said. And so in the midst of the place that you have brought us, we wait for you to lift us up. So thank you, Lord, for the humble circumstances in which you have placed us. I pray for each of my brothers and sisters and all of their unique circumstances. May they go this week and trust you Monday through Saturday for all that you have allowed into our lives. Oh, Lord God. Show yourself strong because you are the true and living God. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.